0: Haggai, Haggai, if you have a hard time looking for that, go to the beginning of the New Testament and go backwards a few pages and you'll find Haggai there, great little book and um, we're going to be studying verses 12 through 15 this morning, we've already looked at verses 1 through um, 11 and uh, trust that uh, God is going to work through this for us this morning and Debbie's going to come and she's going to read the passage for us, let's stand together Haggai, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. In the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. God's word. Amen. Let's uh, pray right now for... For this time. Lord, we ask that you would allow us now to be humble and to be receptive, Lord, for what you have for us. That you would, um, Lord, speak through your messenger. Lord, that I would simply reflect, Lord, your truth. That we would be encouraged, strengthened, convicted, empowered, and, uh, Lord, motivated by you and, Lord, by you through your word and by means of your Holy Spirit's work in our lives, too. Lord, we just ask for your help now as we seek to learn and to grow, to become more like your son, Jesus Christ, and to be faithful to what you've called us to. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, thank you. You may be seated. I'd like for you to get your Bibles and to look at chapter 1. And we're going to begin at verse 1 this morning. And I want to remind you kind of the big picture setting here. Um, It says, in the second year of Darius the king... In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, or the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, and ultimately, we're told, to the people. Um, this is a t- the time of the return from exile. This is when uh, God's people were allowed by Cyrus. God stirred up the heart of Cyrus to allow the people to go back and with the purpose of rebuilding the temple. And uh, the context that we found out last time was that the people had started the work on the temple, but then there was opposition, and they set down their tools, and they allowed the opposition to get them to be distracted, and they are no longer focused on the work that needs to be done, and they have wandered away and have focused on themselves. And so this message comes into that context. And uh, we pick it up there in chapter 1 and verse 1 where we're told on a particular day the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Now the word of the Lord coming um, in today's context comes primarily through either you opening up the Bible or I want to say in a ministerial way it comes through the mouth of a pastor. And um, a number of years ago back in the 50s um, William Sangster, well-known pastor says this preaching is in the shadows, the world does not believe in it. As he looked around, that's what he concluded. A few years later, Alistair Begg, in his little book on preaching, um, lamented, well, Sangster says preaching is in the shadows, the world does not believe in it. Preaching is still in the shadows, Begg says. Much of the church does not believe in it. Well, I've added to that by saying this, preaching remains in the shadows because so many pastors no longer believe in it. And I think that's a honest assessment of where much of the church is today, the preaching of the Word of God to the hearts of people in a sense where it is powerful, it's penetrating, it is impressing upon the people's hearts relating to their sin and their struggle before God, the preaching of reconciliation, the preaching of repentance, the preaching of how do I get out of my sin and how do I walk in a path in a way that honors God, that is something that is often lacking. It's certainly something we want to be faithful to do here. It's not easy. It's not easy because, you know, sometimes God's word is hard. It causes people to feel bad. And yet, that is exactly what God desires because through the difficulty of the word of God being preached, people are reconciled to Him through restoration, through forgiveness through repentance. And that's what we're going to see as we come through this passage. This passage, actually, is one of the many revivals in the Old Testament. It's a very powerful passage. And it's a passage that speaks to us about the impact of the Word of God on the people of God when they are actually living in their own sin. And so the question today becomes this. God is calling his children to consider how the word of God comes to them. He's calling us to to look in this text and ask the question, how does the word of God come to me? How is God speaking to me? And then when, when I know he's speaking to me, what do I do with that? How do I respond? How does it then affect the way I live? And that's Simple, it's basic, but it is absolutely necessary for us to see from God's word the ways in which God's word comes to his people and then how they respond and ultimately how it is fleshed out in their lives. And I would like to say, first of all then, based on our passage of scripture, that the word of God pursues us. The word of God pursues us. Now, picking up at verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, And the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Let me say it this way. The word of God comes through a messenger of God to the people of God who then must decide. The word of God comes through a messenger of God to the people of God who then must decide. So let's think. Let's just kind of break this down into four parts. First of all, God is speaking. That's the word of God. And we need to be reminded that God is in the business of speaking to his children. In the context of living, God is speaking to his children. God is still speaking today. And I know we're reading right now a prophetic message... That took place many years ago, but we must always remember that God still speaks. And he's still speaking his message then to his people. And this, this, this life into which God speaks can be in times of suffering, where there's trials, disease, or heartbreak. It can be times of, of wandering, where there's confusion, there's rebellion, there's bondage to sin, and things like that. It can be times of thanksgiving, celebration, and fulfillment, blessing, and plenty, Tomorrow, probably many of you are going to gather with family. You're going to cook a big meal up, and you're going to enjoy one another. God speaks into that context. He speaks into life. And so in the context of living, God is always pursuing us with his word. It doesn't stop. And so here in Haggai, the word of God comes to confront the people with their neglect of their responsibilities. The word of the Lord And the voice of the Lord are the two expressions that are used here to describe that. The point is, God is speaking, and he's speaking into a context. It's not man's ideas. It's not Haggai who's speaking, right? It is God who's speaking. Now, this week, I was saddened to hear a pastor say, and this was at the 50th anniversary of the celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King's famous speech, this is what this pastor said, and I'm trying, trying to get the sense. I heard it on the radio. I tried to look on, online to find the data that would be there. I couldn't find it. But this is, this is what I heard almost exactly. He said, thus says the Lord, we must never forget the dream of Dr. King. Or something close to that. And I thought to myself, what in the world do you think you're doing? To connect, thus says the Lord, this has nothing to do with your opinion on the speech at all, but to connect, thus says the Lord, with man's opinion and man's word demonstrates a lack of love for God and his word. Demonstrates a lack of integrity that that person has, ultimately, and an agenda of man's ideas being held up to be on par or even superior to God's word. Now, friends, we must be very, very careful. God is speaking to us today. And to me specifically as a pastor, this truth is critically important because God is speaking. It's not Rod's ideas that are going to affect you through this week. I might give you some good tidbits, but that's going to fizzle away real fast. It is the word of God that is the sustenance that you and I need. And so it's important then for me to recognize that my role as a pastor teacher here is to be a mouthpiece. You probably hear me pray about that. Lord, just allow me to be your mouthpiece. That simply means that my my mouth is opening and you are speaking through me. And we must recognize that that is what God does. But God is still speaking. Secondly, he is speaking through a man, okay? He's using a messenger here. And in this particular uh, text, it's Haggai, who is the prophet. But it talks here about the word of God came through the hand of Haggai, or by the hand of Haggai, and through the words of Haggai, the prophet. Haggai was the messenger with God's message, Now, Haggai, in giving God's message, repeatedly says, this is what the Lord of hosts declares. In this little book, he says that ten times. This is what the Lord of hosts says. He says that seven times in this little book. Haggai, as a prophet, is in the business of not giving his own thoughts, but saying, this is what God says. God speaks, but he speaks through a man. The point here then is this, that the prophet of God is simply the messenger of God's message to the people of God. God speaks, the prophet is the vehicle, the vessel through which he comes through. So the prophet's job was not to add to or take away, it was simply to deliver that message. Now in the church age, God does not use prophets like Haggai, instead he uses the office of pastor-teacher. And that pastor-teacher proclaims, preaches, reveals God's Word as God is speaking through that particular individual. Now, this is not new revelation as it was with Haggai. It is recorded, divinely breathed out or inspired revelation. So my job as the messenger is to say, this is the Word of God. This is what you need to listen to. My job is to be able to take it and to present it to you in such a way that it is understandable. It's explained, that it's illustrated, that you are aware of what God is saying because it's being laid out, exposed for you. So this is what it looks like today. And we just put it in a, in a couple of paragraphs here. God speaks to us from his word, the scriptures, through a messenger called a pastor-teacher whose job it is to serve the flock with the word of God, like a waiter serving food. What do you mean a waiter serving food? Well, in the back of the restaurant, the cook is preparing a meal. He's preparing the dish exactly how he wants it to to be laid out. He cooks that steak, and he puts the seasoning on that steak, and he has the vegetables here, and then he throws on the garnish. Now, the waiter gets that. He doesn't want to touch it because that's the cook's responsibility. That's what he's done. Now, if the waiter would take the food and as he's walking to the table says, well, let's turn the steak over and let's put this garnish over here and let's replace this with this, he's messing around with the cook's job. See, God, in a sense, is the cook. He's the one that delivers the food. He's the one that breathes it out. He's the one that speaks it. My job is simply to get that food from that little shelf where the cook places it and somehow avoid all the hassles and obstacles that are in the way and deliver it to the person who's sitting down to eat, and not to mess it up. That is my job. That is the role and the function of a pastor-teacher. And so the voice of God comes to us through the messenger of God who who is called to shepherd God's flock and must give account of himself uh, for his faithfulness in representing God's message that is entrusted to them. That's, that's a daunting thing, friends. And I covet your prayers. And that's why, if, you know, if, if you know other pastors, pray for them. If there are other people in the church that are laboring week in, week out to teach, pray for them. Because handling the word of God is an incredibly important thing to do. To make sure that you're doing it accurately and that you're not putting your own self into it. That you're simply being the mouthpiece for the text of God's word. Now, God speaks through a messenger to the people of God, or to the recipients. Now, who are the recipients here? It's Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, Joshua, the high priest, and the remnant of the people. Now, the rest of the people are really divided up into two groups. There's the remnant, and then there's the people who came back from the exile. So there's two groups going on. You have the remnant who actually remained when Judah was taken captive. If you remember that time, Daniel was taken into Babylon. What happened to him? Well, he was special. He was specially chosen, taken off into exile. Well, there were some Jews that remained in Jerusalem. It wasn't much to to look at all this time. It was a mess. And so there is this this group called the remnant. Then there's all these people that come back from the exile to join the remnant who are there. Okay? And so... You could also say that that is referring to the whole group of people, but I just want to make sure you understand historically the distinction there. There are those that were coming back, and they were coming back with money, they were coming back with with resources so that they could rebuild that temple. The remnant people had nothing. They just looked at the weeds and the rubble and the stuff, but they were just existing, and they were existing under the government of the local people there that were not Jews. Now, what is the message that they all heard? And This is kind of a review of verses 1 through 11. They had neglected the rebuilding of the house of God uh, for 16 years. All the frustration they were experiencing, the economic hardship, the limited and insufficient harvest, the the diligence but without any fruit, all of that had been the providence of God on their lives to get their attention, to cause them to wake up so that they would ultimately, and there's that theme, consider their ways, take a hard look at at the road that they've been walking on, that they are walking on. And it was a message that confronted them for their sinful neglect of their own responsibility, a responsibility that was God-given. It was a message that exposed them for their shifted priorities away from that responsibility. It was a message that convicted them with those realities. It was a message from God through a messenger designed to produce a heart and an attitude of repentance. Now friends, it wasn't just to smack them silly. It was a message to stir up in them a heart of repentance and turning back to God. Get your Bibles and actually turn over one page, just one page to the right. What book do you find there? Haggai, what's after Haggai? Zechariah, Zechariah, notice notice the date of Zechariah, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, ah, second year of Darius, okay, this is the eighth month, now this is is a few months later, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers, therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The context of Zechariah's message is actually after Haggai. It's after his time, and he's still saying to them, listen, you don't want to be like your fathers. You want to still fulfill this responsibility of returning to me. Let's continue reading down here. Um, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Get this. But my words and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? In other words, didn't, they, didn't my words outlast your fathers? Didn't what I say prove to be true? And doesn't it still prove to be true? So here are the people, and they're being exposed for their neglect. There's also this this reminder of what has happened in their past with their forefathers. And so this repentance is basically saying this, God, you are absolutely right. Right? We have been guilty of neglecting you and your respons- and our responsibility before you. We see how we have been causing the or how you've been causing the circumstances of our lives to wake us up and we admit it. We have sinned and we want to ask for your forgiveness. We desire forgiveness and we want to get back to the work that you have called us to do. So this is all part of the repentance. You are right. What you said is true. We're asking for forgiveness. It's forgiveness for our sin, and we want to get back to what you've called us to do. This big package is what they heard and how they ultimately uh, should be responding. Now the question is, what will they decide? God speaks through the messenger of God, to the people of God. How will they decide? And that question is true for us. They can be thankful for God's goodness and grace, or they can be offended at God's goodness and grace. Their forefathers, when God spoke, how did they respond? They were offended. And through Jeremiah, where? In a cistern. Not a happy place. If you want to enjoy a good vacation, find a cistern. And not a sister, but a cistern, okay? And enjoy yourself. There, No, it was, it was not a good experience. They did not like the prophet, and they said, hey, let's get rid of the prophet. So we can respond by being thankful for God's goodness and grace. And friends, hear this. Even God's message that is hard, that is penetrating, that is confronting us in our sin is a message of his grace and goodness to us and for us. Sadly, much of the church does not want that kind of message. They just want the good bits. And friends, the good bits without the hard bits are really not good bits. They're empty bits. They're placebo bits. Okay? True joy and thankfulness comes by going the whole gamut of saying, yes, Lord, you're right. I have been sinful. Please Lord, forgive me of my sin, and I want to restore my relationship with you. And from that comes a wonderful, joyful expression of life with God. But there are many that are offended, offended by how God uh, would speak to them. And often what happens is that offense is directed at the messengers, not the message or God, but the messengers. With words like, how dare you bring us Such an unloving message. Who do you think you are? What makes you so special? You are just a sinner like me. No argument there. Right? Um, You get it wrong sometimes. No argument there. Um, You have offended me at times. It's probably true probably walk by you at a time because I'm looking to do something, and you think, well, how come he's not paying attention to me? And, and trust me, I've had people get upset with me because in the context of church, I didn't shake their hand, and I'm sorry. And if I've done something like that, I'm sorry. But listen, I'm, I'm human like you. Yet, that still being true, God speaks his message through messengers, weak, frail, vessels of clay, that are imperfect. And so hear this. You cannot evade the message from God by complaining about the messenger of God. The message is still the message. Now, the messenger may be ugly, may have bad breath, may be out of shape, may be lacking in fashion, may be having a bad hair day, may be struggling with a personal sin issue. And those are all things that that messenger may truly be struggling with. But that does not excuse you from listening to the word of God that comes through that message. Or, you understand what I'm saying? See? Imperfect. Your pastor will never be a perfect pastor. And that person standing before you at other times speaking will never be that perfect speaker or communicator. But it's the Word of God that is powerful. It's the Word of God that needs to come through. And hear this. I want to just draw your attention to the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the Word of God is, a, is, is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. That means not dividing soul and spirit, but piercing through soul and spirit of the joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Here's the point. God's Word pursues us in those difficult times, in those times of wandering, in those times of, of struggle, in those times of confusion, and He pursues us not just to be near us, he pursues us down into the very heart of our being. And he does that through his word. And we can be thankful for that and be rejoicing with the fact that God cares enough to expose our sin so that we can be be restored to fellowship with him or we can get offended at that. And the reality is, a lot of times we do get offended at that and we have to wrestle through that and we have to say, okay, yes, Lord, you're right. And we finally get to the place. But here's, here's the bottom line point. That God, through his word, pursues us. And that is a wonderful act of grace on his part. But not only he pursues us, he pursues us with a goal of changing us. The Word of God changes us. It was changing the people here in Jerusalem at this point in time. Having been rebuked, confronted, corrected, and directed to consider their ways, the people respond to the Word. Notice what it says now again in verse 12. Zerubbabel son of Shiltiel, Joshua, and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggad the prophet, The Lord, and they also feared the Lord. Now, I want to say there's three things that I want to pull out of this verse and this context that I think are helpful for us. First of all, they listened. Now, friends, this is really important. It is important that when the Word of God is proclaimed or even when you're reading it, that you're actually listening to what it says. It's possible to sit in the context of church week after week and not listen. Here they are listening to the voice of God. All of God's providence combined with the message of God's word through the prophet began to take root in these people. It involved the leadership. It involved the remnants. The preaching of God's word had an immediate and wonderful effect on this gathering of people. It was a community response. A wonderful picture here of harmony and unity among the people together, taking responsibility for their sinful failure of neglect before God. Now, if Jeremiah was reading Haggai's little book, I'm sure he'd be reading it and he would be shocked because he'd be reading and he'd get to verse 12 and he would be saying to himself, you've got to be kidding. These people are actually listening because... His audience was not. (laughs) See, we can choose to listen, and we can choose to push it aside. And this group of people, at least, were listening. Secondly, they obeyed. They obeyed. Now, friends, this is a dream for any faithful pastor that the people under the ministry of the Word of God would obey But it's also the reality of every believer that all of God's people, hear this, can listen to God's word and be changed by it. Let me say it a different way. All can hear the words of rebuke and correction and repent. There is no one who is beyond the reach of God's word and the ability to obey. All of us can. All of us can hear what God says and say, you, God, are absolutely right and I can be obedient to what you're saying. None of us are beyond that. Now, we might think that we're beyond that, but we're not. Now, they didn't immediately go and work on the temple. They had this inner recognition and resolve that they should get back to the work. And it is that attitude of obedience that is on display here and at this point in this narrative. The beginning of their obedience is their repentance. Their resolve, their hearts that are confronted, convicted, and now through repentance are realigned to God's purpose. And so here they are having heard the word of the Lord and over some time have come to the place of they're saying, God, you are right. And we repent of our sin. This heart change was the beginning of their obedience. And remember, obedience is just as much a heart attitude as it is the doing of things. And I know sometimes, like in parenting, we're like, you know, it's not real obedience until you actually do what I'm wanting you to do, right? I understand that dilemma. But there is a reality that in your heart you can say, this is what I desire to do. But it may take you a little while to actually do those things. And that's what we're going to find here, and we'll hold on to that thought for a little bit. But it's not saying, oh, I'm just going to get around to it. Oh, I will. No, this is, not, this is a resolve. I am going to be obedient. I'm going to do what you are asking me to do. There may be obstacles that need to be identified. There may, may need to be other issues that need to be uh, considered before full obedience can actually take shape. But obedience was, was bursting forth in their hearts now with that's the fruit of their repentance. And so we can conclude that what they were going through and how they experienced this time was like, uh, like what happened with the Thessalonian church when they received the word of God from the apostles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 says this And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is the word of God which is at work in you, believers. And we need to be doing the same thing, whether it's in the pulpit, whether it's when we open up the Word of God in our own personal devotions. We need to see that what God has written in the Scriptures is first directed at the original audience, but secondly, speaks to us. And friends, God is still speaking, and He speaks through a messenger. He speaks through His Word now that is recorded for us in the Bible, and we can listen to it, and we can obey it. But notice also here that they feared, they feared God. Fear is often used to refer to an attitude of reverence and awe that people have when they are um, thinking about God or they're, they're, they're contemplating God, much like uh, we find in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Um, where it says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? This, this, this respect, this awe, this, this amazement. Um, that fear, though, is not, um, is not the kind of fear that's being talked about here, okay? And that's a general fear, but that's not the kind of fear that's being talked about here. The, the kind of fear that's being talked about here is not the this, this sense of, of experiencing awe. It really is something deeper and... Um, fuller in this sense. It it is certainly a a fear before the Lord. It's a fear that, that is frightful, if that makes any sense, okay? It's a fear that is extremely alarming. It's like when Moses encountered a burning bush. Ah, what is going on here? It's like Isaiah when he gets his vision from God. Ah, I am undone, There is something far more personal and significant about this kind of fear. It's a word that is used to talk about the the fear of the people before the kings of Babylon. Okay, So there's there's more of a a dread. And and, and ultimately what's going on here is this, that God had, had, had spoken judgment on the people for so long. This was their history. This is what they remembered. They're coming back to Jerusalem now. God has opened up doors, but they failed again, and they're expecting for God to speak now. Once they've been confronted, more words of consequence, more words of judgment, more words of punishment because of their behavior, and so there's this anxious fear about further judgment that is taking place. And friends, it's right and it's understandable for them to respond in that way. Sin has natural consequences, does it not? And more often than not, it is those natural consequences that you and I experience when we sin. Every once in a while, though, God in His mercy withholds the full brunt of those natural consequences in our lives. This is what God then is looking for us in, in his people. And this is Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. It says this, but this, one, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. When you hear God's word, there's a part of you that is not afraid of God, but afraid of maybe your consequences that come as a result of that. But that's not the whole picture. There's more to the story than that. Because we serve a God that is incredibly powerful and incredibly merciful and incredibly gracious. And we'll see that fleshed out more in this text. And so, friends, we must also consider how we are responding to the word of God when it comes to us in power, exposing our sinful attitudes and actions. And many times we want to uh, be reconciled to God, but we fear what the consequences might look like. What will people think if I have to deal with this sin in a way that honors God? Because it may be public, it may be exposed, it may be something I have to talk with my spouse about. How will this affect my ministry in the church? How will my family and loved ones feel when they know the truth? And so there's a temptation here to to not embrace fully what God is saying. And We want forgiveness, we want restoration, but we also wrestle with what does the consequence look like? My uh, friends, let me just kind of summarize it this way. This, there is no easy issue here. Um, we must be willing to trust that God in his wisdom is calling us to come to him seeking forgiveness and in doing so trusting that in being obedient to his will that his way is best even though it may be painful. Once you have gone through the process of full restoration it may be something that people need to know because you've sinned against certain people it's made aware and you find reconciliation and once you have that reconciliation the other side of it is like why didn't I take care of this sooner you probably have experienced that before why didn't I just seek resolve sooner? why did I hold on to this for so long I could have been over this but I was fearing not just getting right with God but I was fearing the consequence of getting right with God. Because if I'm getting right with God, then guess what? I have to now deal with this thing that is my sin in a Christ-honoring manner. And sometimes that's what's hindering us from moving forward. But we must trust that God's way is best. So the Word of God pursues us with the goal of changing us. Thankfully, there is more to the story because God's Word also is strengthening us strengthening us. And friends, that's what's so beautiful about this passage. I mean, first of all, the fact that God would even speak to his children is a wonderful thing, is it not? And, 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 and that he's honest with us. He's honest with us when we are wandering, when we are sinning, when we are straying for what he's called us to. And he desires then for us to be restored and changed by speaking his word so that we would listen, so that we would um, obey, so that we would fear. But now we find out that, that that whole process continues with this strengthening. And that should come as no surprise to any follower of Christ. It is the theme throughout Scripture, the vividly displayed theme in particular in Psalm 1. Listen to Psalm 1, verses 2 through 3. But his delight, talking about the follower of God, is in the law of God and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And so how is it that he prospers? Because this tree, this person is feeding on the word of God, is being nourished by the word of God, it's strengthening him. So many will express their deep struggle and feelings of inadequacy and inability, and that's not unusual to feel that way. Anyone ever felt that way? God's calling me to do something now, and I just don't feel like I have the ability. I just don't feel like I'm equipped to do it. Walter Kaiser gets the sense of that struggle in the following words. He says, but I am so weary, talking about how people would think, I am so weary and so unable to do anything more. How can I receive this challenge to renew the work of God? Already, I believe much better than I practice. Get that? I believe much better than I practice. How will one more challenge help me? Is there no word of comfort in the gospel other than this repeated emphasis on the need to come clean in confession to God and to have his work renewed in my heart? And I I think he he touches on something that that is... Important for us to recognize. Sometimes we just kind of feel like we're just inundated with, you know, you need to do what's right, you need to do what's right, you need to confess your sin, you need to repent, you need to... And, and we say, okay, we've, we've got that, we've got that, but I just feel like so inadequate to move on. Get it? I think we all get it. I know, I get it. Now, here in the context of confrontation, conviction, repentance, God reaches down to his children to strengthen them for the responsibility that he has called them to. Now, friends, there's probably a number of responsibilities that God has called you to that as we are going through this passage, you're saying to yourself, God, I... This is a huge responsibility. I'm trying my hardest. I have failed. I've sinned before you, but, but, but I don't know what to do next. And I don't know exactly how to do it. I just don't know that I have the strength to do it. And God here is reaching down in this moment right now to do something, to strengthen you. But I would say it this way. He is reaching down, first of all, to encourage you by saying, I am with you. Notice what it says in this passage. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. This is after they've responded. This is after their obedience, after they've listened, after they've feared, and he comes with these comforting words, I am with you, declares the Lord. Now, if I were to poll the audience, so to speak, and say, you know, what's your favorite attribute of God? Probably one of the top five would be the fact that he is with me. Just one of the first ones that comes up when I've done it. It's, it's pretty amazing how we, we actually love that attribute, that he is always with us. And that certainly is speaking to his omnipresence. He's, he's always there. He, we are never, ever out of his caring gaze. And that is a great comfort to us. Whether it's difficult times, whether it's a difficult decision, whether our hearts are heavy, through some kind of sorrow or despondency, we rest and rely on his presence. That's his divine omnipotence. But friends, that's not what this passage is talking about. It's a wonderful truth that is always there. The fact that God is, is omnipresent. But what we have here is divine reconciliation. He says, I am with you. This is redemptive. This is an expression of restoration. This is an expression of reconciliation of God with the people of God. Remember the separation language of verse 2? Haggai say to say to them, these people, remember that separation language. You know, take care of your son. All right? That language now has turned to, I am with you. Much more personal. The separation that, that was there because of their disobedience, now has been brought to this place where God says, listen, I want to breathe this into your life. I want to breathe this into this, this relationship here. I want you to be reminded that we are reconciled together. When God's children are repentant, He promises to be with us, to be behind us, to be for us. He is personally and dramatically and powerfully standing alongside of us no matter the assignment. So get the picture of what's going on here. You and I, when we are repentant, when we are uh, have aligned ourselves with God, are never, ever left to do a solo performance. So that responsibility that is on your shoulders that God has placed there because of who you are, you are never, ever, ever doing that alone. God is always with you. He is not just around. He is literally standing by your side when you're teaching that class or discipling that child or disciplining that child or playing the piano or balancing the checkbook or visiting the doctor or sharing the gospel or dealing with that rude customer service representative. He is there with you. Not just in theory, not just kind of floating around mystically. No, he is there with you, alongside you. That's what's going on here. It isn't that God is just promising to be in the vicinity. He is joined at the hip with the day-to-day activities of life. Now, friends, that's good news. (laughs) That is encouraging because there may not be any people around. And you may be stuck in a place where you're like, what is going on here? And you need to be reminded of not just the general principle, yeah, I know God is with me, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, He is there now, specifically, by my side. And we're doing this together. And as we do this together, I need to listen to what He is saying. And that happens practically by being reminded of His truth and His principles that need to be fleshed out. Now, this is true with the the people um, of Israel because... When they left Egypt, what did they do? God commanded them to build a tabernacle. And that tabernacle was a a temporary dwelling place of the Lord that every time they would stop, they would erect it and put it up. And this is where they met the Lord. And everything focused around that tabernacle. It was important for the people to know that God was what? With them. And then when they get into the promised land, ultimately, they build the temple Solomon builds his temple. It's a permanent replacement of that tabernacle. And it's there for a reason to say to the people, I am with you. And here they are. The temple has been destroyed, it's been laying in ruins. And God comes to them after their repentance and after they've done this sorry job of rebuilding it. And he says to them, I am with you. I mean, there's all sorts of theological things that are going on here. Listen. God has not abandoned his people, and he is affirming to them, I am with you. And, and if you have wandered, if you've struggled, if you've had times of despondency and all that kind of stuff, when God speaks to you and you respond in obedience and joy and, and love for him and say, God, I, I've got this responsibility. It's too big for me. It's too overwhelming. He is screaming at you in tender voice, saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. Not just kind of in theory, but practically with you and there's also this divine commission that you see and all these 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 important times in the history of israel god reminds his people that he is with them moses at the burning bush he tells moses who said i i can't speak and what does he say but i'll be with you (laughs) that's no small comfort that's huge Joshua, when he succeeds Moses as leader of Israel, notice what it says, Joshua 1.5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. This is God speaking. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And I'm sure for Joshua it's like, oh, okay, it's fine. No, it's like, oh, man, I needed that. Just on a practical level, guys, that's, that's, that's where we're at. We need to be reminded that his presence with us is not just some kind of nebulous thing, it's a reality. Jeremiah, when he is called to be a prophet in hard times, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And he went through some incredibly difficult times in chapter 1, verse 19, They will fight against you. Thank you for that, Lord. I appreciate that. But they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. You may be struggling, but I am with you. Your health may be declining, but I am with you. Your world may be falling apart, but I am with you. God speaks. His people listen, they obey, they fear, but they fear with an understanding of the mercy of God. And they receive this promise of his presence in their lives, that he is with them. This is what spurred on the disciples when Jesus gave that that incredible commission. We call it the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is no small theme going on there. That is a theme of the word of God, repeated and repeated and repeated. And Jesus says, I am with you, not in my omnipotence, but in my very specific presence with my people, and in particular, you who are the beginnings of the church. And God is no less with his people today. specifically, personally, standing beside us. The job ahead was daunting for these people. As they look around, what do they see? You go to the temple site, it's rubble. There's a foundation, but there's dirt all over. There's weeds. People have grabbed stuff from there. They've started to build their house with the material there. How in the world is this going to take place? God says, I'm with you. (laughs) So you might be looking at your life your marriage, your children, your health, your burdens. And it might seem hopeless, but please just be mindful and dwell on the fact that God is with you. Not only is he here to encourage us, he strengthens us through that encouragement, but he also strengthens us through the energizing dynamic of the word of God at work in us. Notice verse 14, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of the remnant of the people. Now this is referring to this this move of God in the, the inner man of the people that were the recipients of the word of God. So this is the result now of him saying to these people, I am with you. He energizes them for the work ahead. God took the initiative. As they were waiting in a sense, as they were fearing what God would do, Would it be judgment? Would it be punishment? God breaks in and says, I am with you. And that reconciliation language comes now and energizes them for what he has called them to do. And so it's through the word of God they are awakened afresh to the job before them. Their attitude has changed. They have a different motive now. They are energized by God's word to take up their responsibility and to take it up with certainty that he is present with them. And so the if we're struggling with the question, how can we do this work? How can I carry out this responsibility? Now God lovingly and encouraging that he comes along and says, you can do it. You can. And he stirs up our spirit to say, it's not that you can't, but you can. Now, we've got to be careful here because again, we often use the little expressions, never say you can't, you say you won't. Well, let's just be honest. There's a lot of times when we say we can't because we have a false understanding of our ability. Our circumstances seem overwhelming. And so I don't want to just be harsh and just say, well, you know, it's just that you won't. I understand that. And I think there's a place for that. But there's also a place of understanding what were the circumstances that were going on here. This was not an easy situation. How do we get back to it? Well, God says you can. And he begins now to open the way. And the people's Hands start to, to kind of take shape, and they get strengthened their legs and strengthen their bodies, and they begin to think through all that needs to be done. So the Word of God energizes them to take on their responsibility with God's help. Now, friends, it's not simply positive thinking that's going on here, but it is the effect of right thinking that is going on here. And we have a right understanding of what God says and what He is doing and what He promises, that then energizes us to do what he's called us to do. It's not just this positive thinking that says, you know, I can do it, I can do it, I know I can do it. Years ago there was a show, I don't remember what it was called, but there's this character Duffy Moon in it. You may remember it, but he always used to say, You can do it, Duffy Moon, you can do it, Duffy Moon. And I've just remembered that, but that's not what God has called us to be doing. Just repeating and repeating and proving to ourselves just by repeating that we can do it. No, it comes from right thinking. Truly understanding the nature of God. Truly understanding the nature of his gospel. Truly understanding the nature of forgiveness. Truly understanding the the nature of his presence with us. Truly understanding the fact that he doesn't call us to anything that we cannot do with his help. And so when we move down that path, we we can finally think clearly so that we can be energized by his word to do the things that he's called us to do. I can do this because I'm not alone. I can do this because I'm not doing this in my own strength. I can do this because God has called me to do this. If God's going to call you. He's going to give you the ability, with his help, to do that task. So he encourages them. He energizes them. And then he establishes them. And the establishment here is this, that they came and worked, verse 14, on the house of the Lord their God. Sa, aha, now... The obedience is fleshed out. Now they begin to work. It says in verse 15, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of King, uh, Darius, the king or Darius the king. Now notice what we've just read. If you go back to verse 1, it says the first day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Now at the end here it says the people return to the work on the 24th day of the second month. So... From the time God first spoke to the time the people began to build the temple was 23 days. Okay? Now it tells us that the events of chapter 1 took over uh, took place over a period of time. Right? I realize it's really profound. We can do the math. 23 days is time. But I think what's really helpful here is when we understand okay, so all of, the, all of what we've just listened to the message of God and the people's pondering about it and the people's response and, and, and ultimately going back to Luke, took place over a period of time. The word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet and the, the, the people took time to consider their ways. They took time to look hard at their circumstances, to be honest about their neglect. And after some time, they together obeyed, they together feared the Lord. So there's a helpful lesson here. There are times, first of all, when an immediate response is appropriate. All right? God speaks, we respond in obedience right away. But there are also times when God speaks and his people need to take time to seriously consider the impact of what God is saying. Now, friends, we've got to be careful that we aren't expecting one without giving room for the other. And some people need time. Some people need time to process the truth of God's word. Some people have heard the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross, not to be an example, not to show everyone that he was such a great guy, but he died on the cross because you sinned, and your sin puts you in a place where you are condemned, and God's wrath will be poured out on you, except that Jesus Christ died on the cross to be that sacrifice on your behalf, he bore the wrath that you should bear. And by virtue of that, if you believe in that gospel, you can now enter into new life with him. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel. But that good news of the gospel may take time to take root in a person's life. Now, I grew up in a Christian culture that would go out soul winning. I, you know, I, I don't think it's wrong but you can, if you grew up in that culture, think, you know, I've got a, to got a call for the question right now because right now is the appointed time. Right now is the day for the decision. I understand that, the, the, the pressure and the purpose of, 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 uh, of God's time and, and the gospel message being present. But there are times when people just, they, they, they need the gospel of bits and pieces and it slowly grows and they begin to understand it. There are times that you as a believer slowly are growing and you're pondering, you're thinking about what's going on with the word of God and what the pastor is saying or what maybe you're reading in your studies. Now friends, this is one reason why we don't have what you might typically call in our context an invitation system. The end of our service, you know, we have a time of invitation, people come forward and do this kind of stuff. Because the reality is when the word of God is preached, everyone is making a decision. You don't have to walk an aisle to make a decision. If you do... That's man-made. Because all of you are responding in some way, shape, or form. Some of you are responding by saying, you know what? Almost time to go. What's next this afternoon? Some of you are like, I've got to find a place and I've got to do business with guys. See, there's different uh, 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 um, extremes. There you go. I had to find the word. Different extremes. But we're all making decisions. And the best kind of people are the people that will listen to God's word, not so that they can somehow physically and publicly respond, but their hearts can ponder what is being said and then can, in the quietness of their heart, change their ways to be in conformity with God's truth. And friends, we need to make sure that we are open to that and that we are encouraging that. And so on a practical level, what is happening here? The full obedience that began in the heart of these people takes time to flesh out in action. I Just think on a practical level. These people say, yes, God, you're right. We had to t- t- take time to consider our ways. Now we're looking at what is before us and it seems overwhelming. We'll look around and all we we'll see is rubble and weeds and dirt. And so there needs some, to be some time for evaluating what needs to take place? And how do we get the resources available? And where are the resources? And who's going to do that? And then there needs to be some planning because they've gotten themselves into certain habits. And you don't abandon other responsibilities just to take care of another responsibility. And so you've got to kind of sort through what is taking place here. But it took them ultimately to this date, 23 days later, and they began the work. That's an incredibly fast-paced change. And friends, we, we just must be ready and, and recognize that change Full obedience often does take time. And friends, in closing then, I just want to say these things. I'll be real brief, but I think these are helpful. Concluding thoughts. Number one, refreshment, or I might even say revival, begins with the Word of God. If you do a study of the revivals in the Old Testament, times of refreshing, there's always a correlation with the Word of God freshly proclaimed, brought forth, to the people of God who are living in sin, okay? Um, and it should remind us that we need to be confronted with God's word as we, uh, and uh, the result of that is if we listen to it, we are restored and we are refreshed to live for him, okay? And so if there's a move of God where the, the, the word of God is powerfully preached and people are, are being affected by it, we should rejoice um, that sin is being dealt with, but people's lives now are being realigned with God. So the second thing then is reconciliation. It's reconciliation that comes as a result of the word of God being preached and and people being restored in their relationship to God. And the final thing is this, that there is hope. And and this is Romans chapter 15, verse four, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. This is, you know, Paul speaking about his time, but this is true for us now, that through the endurance of, or through endurance, and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now friends, hear this. (laughs) Consider the word of God and how it comes to you in your life. What is God doing? He's confronting you. He's exposing things in your life. He's pressing it home. And you can reject it, offended at it or you can listen you can obey and you can experience a, a proper attitude of fear but at the same time you can be strengthened by it to then do what god is calling you to do and satan loves to jump into that whole mix and mess with our thinking does he not to stop us from the joy of having a relationship with god that is fresh that is right, that is revived, that is reconciled, that is living with hope. He doesn't want that. God does. And that's what he's called us to. And that's how he offers himself. His word is not just to come and slap us silly. It is to draw us back into relationship with him. Lord, help us today to receive your word in a way, Lord, that you desire. Humbly, respectfully joyfully with hearts that are willing to change and lord even now as we go through the celebration of the elements lord as we celebrate the lord's table this is a time for us to be refreshed to be reminded of what you did for us on the cross and lord we may be new believers we may be mature believers but lord we all need to be reminded of the way in which you gave of your body. And Lord, the importance of you shedding your blood as that sacrifice once for all. Lord, help us now as we do that, as we celebrate together in your name. Amen.